on In Your Face on 3CR with James. On today's show, queer entertainers Dina Curry and Luke Forrest join us and historian Dr Noah Reisman. 3CR Dean, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Tough times for the community in Melbourne. Look, I think it's tough times for everyone at this point. I, yeah, like we're, we're really feeling it in Melbourne. I think the same can go for New South Wales and even other states as well. You know, I think after the year and a half we've had, it's we're just rolling with the punches. I think we've all got a bit of fatigue, actually, I think is the best way to put it. What are your thoughts on lockdown complacency and the jolt that lockdown six is having on people in Melbourne? Look, I think because we're just on the heels of lockdown five, let's face it, we were out of that for just under two weeks before we rolled back into another one. Um, I unfortunately, I feel like, well, I actually think the complacency is not there in the same degree. I think everyone's gotten a lot more comfortable with the new reality that we live in and have been living in in the past year. And unfortunately, because we had such a short lockdown with lockdown five, everyone has assumed that's going to be the case this time around. And here we are now where it's not happening and everyone's starting to you know, really start to feel the effects. Unfortunately, I don't see as much compliance as I have in the past year. Yeah, what do you think that's about? Because Delta is much more virulent. It absolutely is, but I think there's a reality. I mean, it's that hard thing as well where I'm trying to encourage people, instead of naming and shaming and screaming all over social media, to go through the right avenues, direct people to the right information, deal with all that kind of stuff. And I think because we did that so much last year and then got to have this wonderful summer, and even though we continue to have restrictions and things like that, it's the fact that I think a lot of people spent a lot of time assuming that once we hit this finish line, then we'll be done. And then we can take a breather. So a lot of, you know, there's the realities of what it means to be in a pandemic and live in a pandemic. And a lot of people, and I'm not saying that everyone should, but it's a hard thing to think that far ahead. I kind of dived into this assuming I wasn't going to have work for a year last year. So anything I got would be a bonus. Anything that happened would be okay. So, you know, it's, but unfortunately, when we're looking at it now, I the complacency is just not there because I think everyone thought this will be done in a week or two weeks and it'll be okay because that's what happened last time. What are your observations about vaccination rates in the queer community here in Melbourne? Look, um, it's it's a mixed bag. We're seeing a lot of people sharing on social media and sharing the information. I mean, I'm really happy that it's been opened up to a lot more young people because the number of people who have spent a huge chunk of time not actually being able to access the vaccine are now able to, and we're seeing people making those bookings, making those responses and doing everything that they need to do. Unfortunately, it's, it's the reality of like it is with the rest of the world. You know, not everyone feels the same way and not everyone thinks the same way. And the problem, I, I think I'm a little disappointed that after a year of seeing so much miscommunication in both media and social media, that that's still continuing. So we're not giving enough people the space to ask the questions. It's either black or white. So for those that necessarily don't 
um, feel comfortable or have their reasons for vaccinations. There's such a approach to attack them that it's making it a lot harder. But we are seeing a lot of young people stepping up and stepping in. We've seen a lot more information in the past month as well um, publicly about the trans and gender diverse communities and what it means for them in regards to it because there was also a lot of confusion for whether or not it was safe for them to be able to access the vaccines. And it's really hard to find that information at this time sometimes. So what were trans folks saying about those safety concerns? Well, it's 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 the reality when I was speaking, to, I can only really speak, I've seen some stuff online, but I can really speak to what I've been speaking to with my friends. Um, and there was concern about what it meant for them with hormones and what it meant interacting with hormones. Because when you jump online and you look at all this information, and we now have access to so much information, it's it can be a little bit daunting and crazy. And look at the reality with a lot of trans people is, you know, they haven't been able to find the information by just asking a doctor. So they're their way of handling things for the transgender diverse community is you've got to do it yourself. You've got to roll up your sleeves. Yes, there are medical information here, there and everywhere, but they have had to really put the hard yards in to find that information and elevate that information within their community. And I had quite a few of my trans friends being really concerned about what it meant for them in regards to the vaccine. So they were asking around to different medical people and doctors, and finally we've gotten that information out, which is great. So what kind of information were doctors giving the trans community? Uh, well, uh, what I was finding is they were asking different doctors because they would be told by a doctor it would be okay, but then they would look at some more information about what it means or see something from America and what it means about a specific thing here or there because there's a reality of different hormones and things like that as well. And that uh, it's just that part where we have access to so much information and unfortunately, you know, look at our communities. When you go to a doctor, you're not getting the information you need all of the time. You've got to go to a specific specialist that fits the needs of your community. And that's a reality that we have to live with. And when it comes to important medical information like that, you know, just asking your GP doesn't always hit the nail on the head. So you've got to source that information the best way you can. And, of course, what people were ultimately finding was that vaccinations are completely safe for people on hormones, yeah? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And But it's I, it's that important thing about creating the the reality of finding that information for them is hard enough and and it's the, it's something we really need to address and assess because we need to provide more access to basic health information for the trans and gender diverse communities because it should be there just like it should be there for everyone else and they have to do the hard yards and the minute there's one little chip and that's the thing for it the minute suddenly there was a thought that maybe taking that this vaccine could affect something to do with my hormones and whether it was a reality or not the thought that that was there was really daunting for a lot of people and and when i and i was just having friends talking to me about it and talking to what me about it for what that meant to them and i i just found that really daunting because that must be really difficult what are gay men telling you about what's happening on the sex apps in relation to social isolation? Are there many breaches? Uh, look, unfortunately, there are a couple of breaches here and there, which is disappointing. It's when you create a black and white narrative in regard to breaches, uh, you know, where it must be right or must be wrong. I, I, a good thing which I found out yes, uh, yesterday actually is the fact that in relation to the bubble, there's a little bit more information involved. Your bubble buddy can actually be a friend who's in a relationship, which in the past wasn't the case. So I've had this scenario where a lot of people are like, do you want to have a bubble buddy? And I'm kind of like, I'm not saying I don't want to have a bubble buddy, but for me, it needs to be someone that ticks a box in a lot of different ways for me, whether that be personal, social or sexual, because I want to be able to have the right connection I need because this could go for longer. 
And and I, one of the things I've found is a lot of people I want to have as a bubble buddy are friends who are already in relationships because it's about having that buddy. It's about having that right connection. And I, I as per the past restrictions, had assumed that wouldn't be the case because if they were in a relationship, that was their bubble. And it turns out uh, that's not actually the case. Someone from uh, the Department of Health let me know yesterday that it is actually okay for me to be able to have my bubble buddy be a person who's also in a relationship. They just have to come to my house and I can't go to theirs. So it's it's worth always going back and looking at the information and asking more for yourself because everyone assuming that the details and info is the same as last year, that isn't the case. Of course, bubble buddy visits can't happen during curfew hours. What are queer folks telling you about their views on the curfew? I have found a mixed response. The biggest and I think one of the most important responses to curfew has actually been the concern that everyone's having about the policing of it. And I think that speaks a lot to the narrative of our communities is the fact that the first response that comes out of it is, you know, you can't police your way out of health. And and we do, as a community, have a lot of concern. I mean, even on a really simple level, when it was announced the other day, I was just sitting around thinking, you know, if I happened to see a police car drive past me right now, I would be a little bit freaked out by that. And um, everyone has their own relationships to positions of authority and, and police in our communities, but there is a greater concern for the realities of policing your way out of a pandemic. Of course, as we're well aware, the realities to a curfew isn't actually... Um, about stopping the spread, but about controlling behaviour. And and that's something that can be really frustrating because there's a large portion of our communities that have been doing everything fine, that have been following the rules as best they can and managing with that. And, and, you know, kind of teetering on the brink, if we're going to be really honest, mental health in our communities was already at a dangerous point. And that's still the case right now. And every little extra bit kind of tips it a bit more. So I'm hoping people are going to do that their work to create a bit more space for online spaces and connection after that 9pm curfew, because the reality of that can be really hard on so many, especially those who are already isolated. Yes, we've really turned into a surveillance state. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Unfortunately, that's that's part of the realities of a curfew. Like, it, it's part of the... I mean, and I think that surveillance state narrative, that's not just about police. You know, that's that's kind of what ha- has happened all around, whether it be to people taking pictures on social media, as we saw last weekend. You know, I saw a lot of people sharing the images of the Peacock Inn. People weren't really focusing on what the truth of the information was, which is this is a picture of people sitting outside while someone plays music on the roof of a cafe next door. And uh, we really have become this state of, you know, share and shame instead of regulating in a way that I would like to see more people do, which is through the correct process, contacting the Department of Health, contacting the Department of Justice. It's funny, over the past week, I'm seeing a lot of narratives from friends talking about what's so wrong with being a dobber, what's so wrong with being a snitch, because there is a stigma that comes with it, because you feel like you're, you know, you're the bad person because you're telling on someone. But in this current climate, we need everyone to kind of work within the rules so that in the next two weeks, we can get this as low as possible, if not to zero, so that we can keep moving forward from that. You're listening to an interview with Dina Curry on 3CRs in your face. Of course, you've done so many online performances during previous lockdowns. What's that task like for you now? I mean, you must find it pretty exhausting and a bit daunting. You know what? It's not. Uh, It was. 
But it's absolutely not because, like I, like I was saying earlier, when this started last year, I made the assumption, let's pretend like it's going to happen in December. When we had the first couple of weeks of a lockdown way back in, I think it was March or April, it was just after chill out. Literally, we, I'd, gone, <laughs> I'd gone Mardi Gras, chill out, and then at chill out we were hearing rumblings and suddenly a week later I think we were starting to lock down. And um, sure, it was harder and a bit more difficult then, but I think we've all gotten a lot more comfortable with what that means. But last year, I went, let's see what happens if this is going to happen. You know, I assumed that this could happen till the end of the year. So I worked and sorted a space for myself and a, and a setup online and at home so that if it was something that continued, I wouldn't be packing everything away and putting it back up. And and that's just, that was a survival me- mechanism for myself. I presume the worst, so anything extra is gravy. So I presumed we were going to be in this situation till the end of the year. And look, it's still rolling and keeping on going. So now it's just fitting into another gear. So I've got the setup, I've got the situation, and I know how to entertain online. Don't get me wrong, I love and miss live audiences so much. Um, I was really grateful for the spaces and places and ways in which we were able to facilitate that within the restrictions during midsummer and over the open parts of the year. But yeah, it, it's no longer daunting and exhausting. You've just got to use your gear in another way. And uh, I, I've i figured out how to do it. I think what's driving me a little more insane is the fact that those online spaces for me are my connection to things in a broader way. Because when, when I'm getting on the phone and talking to people or doing FaceTimes with my friends and people in the community, we're all feeling the same pressure. We're all feeling the same fatigue and exhaustion that we've all been feeling, you know, that everyone's going through. And, and we're all sharing that because it's all we can do right now, which is why for me, those online spaces are, I'm grateful when people say that they really help them, but they really help me as well. Of course, your alter ego is Frock Hudson. What can we expect from Frock online supporting and rallying the community? <laughs> well, Frock is still continuing to do Frock Up Fridays. Um, Dean is doing the weekly trivia every Wednesday that I haven't stopped. Uh, go- I haven't stopped all year. And Frock is doing Frock Up Fridays, which is a whole lot of fun where I basically just get online, uh, drag up, get online, and people can suggest songs and then I sing them, whether I know them or not. So it brings a bit of fun and spontaneity and chaos uh, and it's been really fun with people in different time zones and states and territories around the country jumping in uh, in times in the live stream as well. And uh, I'm just, I'm, I mean, we've got We're at Purple Day coming up um, and I'm just finding different ways and to entertain, to elevate, to share and hopefully uh, to spread. We've got some great regional things happening and we've got some great things happening in Melbourne and everyone's still looking forward to and fingers crossed that we're going to be able to be together and be social and physical in a month. So that's why it's really important for everybody to just, you know, hunker down. I know it's hard. There's a lot of access. I'm not the only person doing things online. There's a lot. There's a lot of people doing and sharing things. But if that's not your bag either, do whatever you can to keep connected to your community. Of course, last year you were a huge part of Carrie and Dolly with Community Darling. Uh, Dolly's leaving the country next week to go and live in London. What's your farewell message to her? Oh, look, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to lie. Uh, a part of me is just 
devastated uh, to be saying goodbye to Dolly. It's been really, really hard. Uh, we've been chatting constantly, even when Dolly was starting to think about just going for that move. And it's not going to be forever. I stress this to everybody. Um, it's really unfortunate, obviously, with all these restrictions, Dolly's farewell concerts and, and shows are not going to be able to happen. And I already miss Dolly. Dolly is very dear to my heart. And we approach community and entertainment in much the same way. I love Dolly with all my heart and soul. And sure, Dolly's going to be on the other side of <laughs> of the world for a bit and the reality of uh, I'll be doing a lot of FaceTiming I miss Dolly already and um, it's really hard being locked down as well because what I wouldn't give to just give Dolly a big hug right now would be wonderful but I guess I'm gonna have to wait till I can go over to London to do that to her then. I mean she's got such a huge presence in Melbourne uh, she's irreplaceable who's gonna take her throne? Look I'm ready I'm not gonna lie I've been practicing a lot. <laughs> I think it's a funny, no, I joke. I think it's this funny narrative where a couple of people have had that, oh, well, now this is my moment and this is my chance. And what a lot of people don't realise or don't think of is they think that, um, you know, I don't, like I said, Dolly and I approach a lot of things in a lot of ways and community is community. You get in, you do what you can, you work with the communities and, and elevate as much as we can. And there are plenty of people doing that. So I think it's just going to create more space for everyone. Instead of one person being at the top of the tier, Dolly always brings people along to the ride. I'll be doing the same thing and so will everyone else. So I just look forward to creating more spaces and avenues for every performer who's been doing it tough over the last year and a half to step up, be seen and have a wonderful, positive time. Dean McCreary, always great to chat with you on 3CR. Thanks so much. Thanks a lot. 3CR. And for information about vaccines, please consult your doctor.
snacks on there. Best shot. Well, performer Luke Forrester has released a new podcast called The Lilypad, and I chatted with him in May before it was released. Luke, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for having me, babes. How comfortable are you feeling about re-emerging into the creative world? Oh, gosh, not not very at all. (laughs) It's so interesting because uh, I have seen some friends that have just been itching for, for this moment to get back out onto stages and to start performing. And they've been, uh, you know, counting down the, the days and the hours until they can get back out there. Uh, for, for me, it was kind of the opposite in, in that it took a lot of time and quite a lot of, uh, uh, critical thinking about myself to go, um, am I ready to go back out there? Um, uh, and, uh, you, it's, I don't think it's at all like riding a bike. It's like, I think it's like a muscle actually. It's something you need to keep doing and, and train for and, um, really work towards. So it's, it's a scary time. Um, and I'm excited to, you know, uh, make people laugh again hopefully fingers crossed <laughs> and um but i definitely don't think it's easy for for everyone it, it's actually never been easy for me in the first place so i think that's a part of my my own struggle it sounds like you've been a little bit self-critical you talked about those you know critical issues coming up yes yes and i i think that's an important trait that i have that doesn't get talked about a lot um, in the kind of comedy performing arts world, um, it tends to, I think the arts tends to attract very outgoing, um, extroverted personalities. And obviously that for obvious reasons, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, but I also think there is a large group of really creative people who love making stuff and love doing things like comedy and 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 public speaking who are actually really self-critical and really introverted and uh quite shy and i it's a it's a double-edged sword it's something i've tried not too hard to push away or get rid of because i think that voice is also important for people to hear when i was doing the other podcast i would remind myself all the time of like how many sort of uh queer half filipino introverted nerds are there in pop culture and and there's very very few and and i i didn't want to lose track of that ever so even though they're they're not the funnest times to to go through and be in the middle of I think it's important to keep true to it as well because that representation can mean a lot to some other little queer kid listening to a podcast and going hey wait a second that's me that that guy's like me and he's he's doing it you know I can do it too um so it's it's kind of a double-edged sword I think Speaking of double-edged swords, how much Ooh. pressure does the validation from the community kind of, you know, create, especially when you're thinking about embarking on a new project? I love validation. Validation is like 
one of my favorite things. <laughs> it's my main motivating factor. Um, there's there's a lot of pressure within the gay community, and I think there's a lot of pressure on people of color uh, to be something I've found really difficult to navigate is the pressure placed to uh, kind of be, as a person of color, uh, entertaining as well as informative and all of these really lovely things, you, you know, uh, insightful but yet funny and passionate and informed. And every time you step in front of a microphone, you feel the weight of an entire underrepresented community on your shoulders. Uh, and that can really really wear you down um over time and i think the the trick to it is kind of ties into what i said before is you can only really be yourself and by representing yourself truly and being who you are uh you're contributing you you are adding to that visibility you are being a voice and that that's like the bare minimum that's all you need to do babe and if you can be all those other things that people expect you to be funny and entertaining and insightful and informative and, and, and impassioned, they're, they're the cherries on top. That's the bonus, but just representing, uh, an underrepresented, um, part of our community is important enough. Um, so that's what I try to remind myself when I feel, feel that pressure. I know sometimes we'd get, we'd usually get an email from our producer with like, here's the topics we're going to delve into this week on the show. And sometimes things would stick out to me as one of two people of color on that show to be like, this is clearly a topic for me and Mikey to dive pretty deep into, or I felt some expectation to really find the gold in that topic because it was racially charged or, or, or there was some connection to, to, to race issues in there. Um, uh, and it would stress me out because sometimes you just can't be all of those things at once. You're just, you're just you. Um, but I, I, I'm really, yeah. I, I feel like I'm telling myself over and over again in this <laughs> interview is just being represented and, and being visible and using your voice is enough. And I, I think that goes not just for people of color, but queer people, trans people, uh, uh, any underrepresented um, minority, using your voice is, is, is enough. Three C the last few months it's have actually really highlighted how important race representation here in Australia and, and our relationship with our multiculturalism, how important that is to me. Um, uh, it may have been about a month ago. We actually rejoined and did a little reunion episode of the gays are revolting and, uh, one of the topics we, we got to delve into was the upcoming cast reveal of uh, RuPaul's Drag Race Down Under. It was it actually ended up being announced maybe half an hour after we'd recorded, which is a bit of a pain because we were going off speculation and then suddenly we'd finished and we had all this tea 
that we <laughs> could have spilt. Um, and I, I remember because there were some pretty questionable uh, actions by one of the contestants in regards to, to uh, some racially insensitive things that they had done in their history. And I was sitting in the room and I was recording with the boys and I thought, don't do it. Something in my head was like, don't go there. Like, this is a nice reunion episode. Everyone's having a kiki. It's a nice time. People want to tune in, uh, have a laugh, catch up with us because it had been a, been a hot minute since we'd recorded. Don't go down the road of this is really bad. Australia has some issues with our race representation and how, uh, and how we respond to culturally and uh, cultural appropriation. And I just kind of bit my tongue. And uh, in terms of the the social world, uh, I walked away from that thinking, no, that was the right decision. You, you know, you can't go in to fight and to bat every single time. Uh, but th- the instances of, of racially charged hate crimes and the, 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 the slow but constant um, increase in uh, sort of racially charged Asian, in, in particular Asian sort of stereotypes and, and um, microaggressions just started to creep up ever so slightly. And you realize like, this is really important to me. There was a shooting that happened in Austin and, and, I suddenly realized I'm so passionate about this and I had a platform right in front of me with so many listeners and and an opportunity to talk about something that means a lot to me and I didn't take it. So uh, that has been gnawing at me uh, for a little bit and I, I think now is a really good time for, for us as a community to reflect not upon just the actions of individual people um, and and what they may say and do and the microaggressions there, but also the the structure around them that sort of lets people think that it's okay to do things like blackface, for example, or a really offensive Chinese stereotype, or make a joke about COVID um, being in the Chinese flu or something like that, and really look down into say what what is it about our society that supports actions like these. And um, that has been on my mind, I think, quite a lot for the last uh, maybe two months. And it's one of those things it's hard to put into words when you're so passionate about it. It, it, It's tangled up in all your feelings. So I could go on for hours (laughs) about it. But, it's interesting, um, isn't it? Because I think Australian audiences have been, you know, more more hesitant to criticise it than American audiences. And there's been a lot of criticism towards this season from American audiences about blackface and even about Lindy Chamberlain's impersonation. Mm, mm, it's. I'm so glad we get an opportunity to to talk about it because I I I've, I find the Lindy Chamberlain aspect really interesting as well, and have seen potentially more discourse around that than, than 
the unfortunate blackface and yellowface, I hate that term, but I'm just for shorthand, I'm going to use it here, incidents. And, uh, and speaking to friends, I think it's because in the US, the, the conversation's already started and it, that it's been going for a really long time and and it's it feels so much more of a under the rug taboo topic here in Australia. Uh, I think we ha- this is all my opinion, so please don't slide into my DMs or anything like that. Uh, but it feels like sometimes we can have an attitude of okay, we know that's really bad and yes, we know about our history and we know that's all bad. So let's just not talk about it, okay? We get it and and we understand, but let's not have the conversation because the conversation, I've, I feel like when we do have that conversation, it's going to lead to some pretty uncomfortable outcomes. It's it's going to really poke holes in some some fundamental ideas that we have about uh, our Australian identity. Um, and yeah, I, I always wanted to question, we can go on these uh, tirades about let's make this individual apologize. Let's make Scarlett apologize for the actions that she did. And, and uh, that is absolutely reasonable and uh, justifiable to ask for. The bigger question I have is what about the venues that she was performing at that said, this is okay, let's book this performer and let them get up and perform in in full blackface and the audience that watched that and put it up on social media and took the photos and enjoyed and and, and uh, sort of enabled that performance to happen. There's a, there's a bigger circle around the individual that... that uh, I feel like we're kind of scared to go down that path. Let's just keep it really contained to the one person doing something really awful. Um, so we don't have to look at the rest of it is kind of how it feels to me. Um, whereas I think the U S is more in a state of saying, let's tear this whole thing down. You, you know, it's, it's, it's gotta, it's the buck's got to stop here and, and some big changes need to happen. Three C.
the sun And in the taxi home I'll sing you a tripid song Courtney Barnett there, History Erasure. You're listening to In Your Face on 3CR. 3CR. We do have Dr. Noah Reisman, a historian on the line. Noah, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for the invitation. Always a pleasure. It's great to talk to you. Now, you're the author of a new paper called A History of Transgender Women in Sport in Australia. Uh, from 1976 to 2017. Uh, Let's begin with 1976. What happened then? Why is that the start of your research? Well, first, this paper is part of the broader project I've been doing the last few years on trans history that I've, you know, been talking to your show a bit about. And it grew out of uh, some of what I'm sure we'll talk about in a moment, some of the interviews I did with some former and current sports people who are transgender. But to go to your your question about 76, I think 76 is, it's not just Australia, but globally, that's this big moment in trans sport history, but also trans history in general, because that's the year of Renee Richards. And Renee Richards was a professional tennis player from the United States who was outed by a a newspaper in California. um, And then, you know, she was, then became public about being transgender. And there was all sorts of, you know, there was a lawsuit when they tried to stop her from being allowed to play in women's tennis, and she actually won that lawsuit um, and was allowed to continue in the WTA. So that's this sort of global moment um, where you have this really visible all of a sudden, like, whoa, trans woman playing tennis. And, and, it, and it really, that moment has resonance in Australia because, you know, then there's these questions in Australia, like, oh, well, can Renee Richards play in Australia? And very early on, the Australasian, oh, God, I'm probably going to get the title wrong, the, the Women's Lawn Tennis Association of Australasia said, no, she would not be allowed to play here. You had Margaret Court um, coming out back then and saying she wouldn't play against Renee Richards even uh, in exhibition match, and I should say she very much much misgendered Renee Richards, always referred to Renee um, with male pronouns. Um, but then also the, the media, you know, they find they find this case of Lee Varis, who's a sportswoman out in the Pilbara, and there's a cover story about her in Truth, that, that lovely old tabloid. But it's actually a surprisingly supportive, affirming article. It had a really um, shocking, mocking headline, which was really not uncommon back then. But they obviously interviewed Lee, and there was actually quite a bit of respect in how they reported on this lovely, nice, respectable trans woman who had found a place in this Pilbara community and had been invited and playing on the basketball team and a few other sports, and they all accepted her as a female. And so that's sort of the the reason why 76 is this is this moment. There's Renee Richards, and then it's like, oh, let's see if we can find some other sports people and write about them in the media. Tell us about the fair play discourse that your paper explores. 
So this is something that other scholars have written more more detail about. People who've looked more broadly at um, the the sort of theories around trans women in sport, and and well, I should say trans people, but usually it's almost always about trans women. Um, trans men often not incorporated in this, and non-binary people as well. Um, it's this notion that you know whenever the the debates come up about trans women in sport, it always comes to what's called fair play discourse, this notion that it's not fair. It's, it's, they have an unfair advantage um, because of you know, X, Y, Z, biology, this, that, the other, the argument. And this is the, the constant debate that we hear now. But one thing that my article and my research has shown is that's the same bloody argument that's been happening since 1976 with Renee Richards. And it's interesting that it's one of the things that came out of Richards was that was sort of the way that Renee Richards was looked at, there were two big things that came out. One was the fair play discourse. Is it fair? And the other one was this sort of authenticity. Is she really a woman? And every time you have a case of trans woman in sport popping up in the media, even as recently as today, it still comes back to those two same damn debates. And look, you can probably tell by the tone of my voice where I sit in those debates, but it's not my purpose in that article to try and engage with the debate so much as to historicize them and show that we've been having the same debate for the last 40 plus years. Of course, your, your paper, you know, came about through oral history interviews and also through meticulous research about media reports. It also explored teammates. What did you discover in relation to teammates and I guess competitors as well? Yeah, look, this is really interesting. So what inspired this paper was actually three of the, the lovely athletes um, I interviewed um, who are in the paper. So that's Ricky Coughlin and Kirsty Miller and Caroline Late. I know you've had Caroline and Kirsty on your show before. Um, is is Actually, I wound up just coincidentally emailing the three of them like three days in a row. Like, not planned to, like, I was just interviewing multiple people for my project and I interviewed these three and I'm like, okay, there is clearly something to say about sport. Um, and one thing that came across from all three of them, and look, there are variations on this that we can, that I'm sure Caroline and Kirsty have spoken about probably in far more detail on your show, was they all, for the most part, at least initially, were accepted. They were accepted by their teammates. They were also accepted by competitors. And Mayanna Bagger, who's another uh, former golfer who I interviewed for this, was very clear on the same thing. They didn't have these these fights that we see in the media and these arguments about fair play discourse and these arguments about the whether or not they were really women. Their teammates accepted them. That was it. The end. With Ricky, same thing. Ricky talked about once she was outed and people knew that she was transgender, they were like, well, you're Ricky, you know, we know you. You, you, you run with us. I'm, I'm very much paraphrasing what she said. But now, look, with Caroline and Kirstie, it wasn't quite the same. At first, they were accepted, but then they did come across quite a bit of transphobia um, once they were outed. So, I, I mean, that's where there is complexity and there's nuance in this. But, but there is this important point that all often the people who were shouting the loudest, the commentators, the, the politicians, the right-wing media – they're not the ones actually on the ground. On the ground, it, the people were often accepted by their peers. And I guess you know some sports were better than others as well. Uh, what can you tell us about the good sports and the bad sports, if you like? Look, that's a really 
tough one to say um, because I can, first off, I mean, I wasn't targeting any particular sports per se in this project. It had to do with, you know, it, as a cisgender male, when I'm doing this research, it's very much about centering the voices of the people who, who I interview and letting them show. And it just so happened that the sports people who I interviewed happened to be people who had participated in athletics, golf, um, rugby, both union and league, and, and AFL. And so, look, it, it's hard to generalize, except I would say that there did seem to be more difficulties for people in those sports that traditionally are associated with masculinity. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why Caroline and Kirsty came across more problems, um, more, more transphobia, more challenges, is they were participating in women's sports, so in Caroline's case, women's rugby, and in Kirsty's case, AFL women's. But these are sports that we know that traditionally have been associated with masculinity, so they copped, I think, a bit more flack of this idea that, oh, you're actually a bloke and, and blah, 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 whereas in golf, and athletics where there's a much longer tradition or of of much more visibility and participation of women, I think there was a bit more leeway perhaps in, in those areas of not just seeing them as, as men participating, trying to take over the sport or, or gain an unfair advantage. But but I but I make these hypotheses with that sort of caveat, like I said, this is just going off for particular people whom I've interviewed. I mean I imagine there are plenty of other players in athletics or golf who may have had not so good a time, and there might be more in, in AFL and rugby who may have had a better time. But based on the what I have to go off and the people I've met, that that's what I would say. You mentioned tennis before, Noah, and uh, Margaret Court. She gets a lot of media publicity, but how much real influence has she had on policy when it comes to trans women in tennis? think she's had much. Um, to be honest, I feel kind of bad now that I even brought her up because I think we give that woman too much oxygen. Um, but look, it was, it was, I suppose the reason it makes more sense in this context was it was 1976. She was still active. She was one of the most high-profile Australian women tennis players at the time. So I suppose in that sense, it kind of made sense to ask for her comment. But in terms of today, you know, you know, I think I think we, we, as I said, I think giving too much oxygen to her views. Absolutely. Now, look, just looking comparatively, of course, uh, Australian-based sports have made leaps and bounds of progress in relation to policy around trans people in sport. Uh, how do we compare to other countries, do you think? And did people that you interviewed talk about, about the here and now? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, look, I can't confidently answer that because I haven't really looked at other countries in my research. And in terms of the here and now, I do try to bring my research into the present. And in that sense, I think what we're seeing now, and, and this is a bit global, I suppose, is, is there is more push for trans inclusion in sport. I think last year, it was in October, there was a lot of, um, there, was, there was a group of, I think it was eight, it might have been more, of the profession, of the the peak bodies in Australia all had sort of a joint release, press release where they came out with trans inclusion policies. Um, not every sport had agreed to this, and there have been quite a few trans people who said they don't think those policies have been inclusive enough or that they haven't been necessarily applied equitably. But certainly in Australia, I think things have been progressing unevenly, perhaps, we could say, but in general more towards inclusion. Uh, 
broadly speaking, the UK tends to, because there's a lot more turf influence there, tends to be a bit more behind. Um, but I couldn't really speak about other jurisdictions because I don't know enough about them. No, you do groundbreaking research on, on trans people. What's the journey been personally like for you? I mean, you do so many oral history interviews, you speak to so many people, uh, and you are a trailblazer with your research. I mean, it must have a huge impact. Can you share that with us? Oh, that's very generous of you. And, and I wouldn't say on trans people, I'd say with. Um, with and, and so, um, look, I've learned a lot. As I said, I'm a cis man, cis white man, not going to, you know, I know that comes with lots and lots of privileges, but like I've been blown away by the amazing people I've met. I've interviewed about 70 plus people at the moment and the project is still ongoing, but I suppose, you know, I, I would have never before this seen myself writing an article about sport. I mean, I, I've recently taken up ice hockey and I'm loving that, but I'm not necessarily a sports person and sport history isn't my field. But one thing that really came out of just looking at sport as one example, trans people in Australia and in the world historically have been involved in every part of life. You know, my previous research was on the military, and that's what got me into this, was meeting trans people in the military. And now I've been able to talk about them in sport. And, you know, trans people in unions, trans people in theater, you know, every they're part of society, a part of life. They're everyday people we know and meet on the street. And so it's just been amazing that people have been so generous to share their stories with me, and I try my best to do justice to affirming their voices in whatever I write to get that history out there so people can learn that that they've always been here and part of every every part of life always what's up next i mean you've done the military you're exploring sport what other what other areas are we going to see you what focus i'm on? actually working on right now and it is still part of this project is a history of uh trans health care in australia um, which is something that i'm putting a report together for um ozpath the australian professional association for transgender health and it's been really, really interesting because, uh, you know, we, we've obviously, broadly speaking, we've gone from a very gatekeeper, psychiatrist controlling things model towards a more affirming model of informed consent. But there's a lot in that journey from the first um, cases of trans people is, well, in the mid-1800s, to be honest, um, through till now, but especially in the post-Second World War and the, the way that healthcare providers have and specialists and doctors have worked with trans people has changed a lot. So that's sort of uh, what I'm working on right now is the, the healthcare system and, and healthcare for trans people, that history. And of course, Australia has a proud history of community health, especially in the LGBTIQ area, especially, you know, since um, HIV AIDS began. Um, it'll be fascinating to hear your insights in that area. Anything you can share now? Yeah, well, one thing that's interesting is, is um, a lot of the doctors who were sort of not all, no, yeah, quite a few, especially in the 90s, a lot of the GPs who started, well, I say a lot of, but we are talking a really small number here, but the GPs who started breaking away from the gatekeeper model and started to be more affirming of trans people in an informed consent model, often but not always were gay or bisexual doctors. And I think part of that was, as some of them have even said in interviews, is the legacy of gay men having been a sort of pathologized group that psychiatrists and others were defining until the 1970s. And so you sort of see by the 90s, the the GPs who are the first who tend to break away from that tended to be gay or bisexual men, uh, and women as well, I should say, including straight women. So there's some insight in that, absolutely, what you just said. Noah Reisman, always great to talk with you on 3CR. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. 
Always a pleasure. Thanks for the invite. This is in the middle of the pandemic where this billionaire is suing the Pentagon for a military contract for what most people think is the place that you order books from. It's a very interesting case study in pulling out the different threads of militarism and how it can really be embedded in so many aspects of our lives that we don't even realize that when we order something from Amazon that we're putting workers' lives at risk and that we're supporting what is becoming
becoming an increasingly important actor in the military industrial complex. Exposing that to people, I think, is very important. People will care if they understand that this is how things are all interconnected and linked. It's surfacing that information, it's making that accessible and making it relevant for people's lives. And I think that is another opportunity that COVID-19 really presents to us is that we are all connected and these structures are all connected. We can see that much more clearly now than we could before. We need to keep Radical Voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook.